What do Italians, rice patties, and feminism have in common? We'll find out on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can visit our social media at Delicious History Podcast for both Instagram and Facebook, as well as our website, delicioushistorypodcast.com. We also have a Patreon, if you'd like to support the show, at patreon.com slash delicioushistory. And as always, I'm your host, Dave Militello. Militello, or properly said, Militello. As an Italian-American, a lot of my identity is trying to figure out what exactly I am. When I go to Italy, people say I'm American, and when I'm in America, people say I'm Italian. The good news is that a crisis of cultural identity is really kind of a hallmark of what it means to be Italian overall. A lot of us think about Italy as this entity that's been around since time immortal. And while it's true that Italy does have, obviously, a ton of history that goes back for thousands of years, the fact is that Italy as we know it really hasn't been around all that long. I mean, historically, Italy has been a geographical description, meaning the Italian peninsula. But politically speaking, it's always been very divided. Whether portions of it have been part of different empires, or if, uh, you know, talk about different city-states, the Papal States, the Kingdom of Two Sicilies, the Venetian city-state, Florence, etc. That's really what has been identified as Italian for such a long time. And until relatively recently, people didn't say, I'm Italian. They would say, I'm Florentine, I'm Venetian, I'm Roman. But that all changed in 1861. That's right, Italy, as we know it politically, has only been around since 1861, making it much younger than the country of origin for many of you who are listening right now. When Italy was unified in 1861, there was a lot of questions, like, well, now that we're unified, what does it mean to be Italian? We think today of, well, what do Italian people speak? And the obvious answer would be Italian. But when Italy was unified, there was no Italian. The peninsula just had a series of related dialects until eventually somebody sat down and said, okay, we're going to make Florentine standard Italian. Even today, there's dozens of active dialects within the country. I mean, I think like when my family came over, they were all speaking Sicilian. And, you know, at least in my years, Sicilian sounds a lot more like Spanish than it does to standard Italian. And then, of course, we think of food. What is Italian food? Even today, there really doesn't seem to be much agreement as to what exactly Italian food is because of just how regional the cuisine is. I mean, people can't even agree from town to town how to make a specific dish, let alone what is a national dish or a series of national dishes. Everywhere you go, they have their own specific dishes or their own variation of a familiar dish. And when a lot of people think of Italian food overall outside of Italy, what do they think about? And chances are most people are going to think of pasta in one form or another. But lest we forget that there are other staple foods, such as rice. That's right, Italians and rice. To help us understand this strange dichotomy of Italians and rice, we have a special guest with us today, 
Dr. Diana Garvin, professor of Italian studies at the University of Oregon. She actually just came out with a new book, Feeding Fascism, the Politics of Women's Food Work. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thanks so much for having me here. We're very happy to have you here. So let's talk a little bit about your your book here. Now, again, Feeding Fascism. So obviously, a lot of what you're focused on is a very specific time period of Italian history. So why don't you explain that to us? So in Feeding Fascism, we're looking at the fascist ventennio. So that's the 20-odd years of fascist rule, 1922 to 1945. And in the past, historians have talked about this period as being a parenthesis in Italian history. It was totally different from other periods. But I'd argue it actually works more like a magnifying glass in that it blows up violent tendencies that are always there but are a lot harder to see. You can think of it as dictatorial bombast as a method. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's and it's also interesting to think about that there was it wasn't just everything was good in the Italian kingdom and all of a sudden we had Mussolini. There was obviously a long period of time, just like in uh, just like in Germany. Same thing. Hitler just didn't show up one day and all of a sudden the country was at war with the world. It was there was a long period of time before that. It's exactly that. Um so a lot of the food actually stays the same. It's just that Mussolini recast poverty as patriotism. It's some of the same um, big salads, vegetable stews, what we often celebrate today as la cucina povera or the cooking of the poor. Um, it's that now we have um, just showers of Parmesan and butter on top of it, making it taste really good. Doesn't sound too bad to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's better with Parmesan. Yeah, or if you're Roman, uh, Pecorino Romano. Um, oh, definitely. <laughs> got your Pepe. Great. So that's okay. So, <laughs> so now let's talk about. Now we're done talking about the the pasta. Then we're not talking about pasta. You have to forget pasta for a second, which is difficult for me. And we need to talk about rice. Uh, you know, so as far as risotto, that's something that people eat and sometimes forget is Italian. You know, as far as obviously we know it's Italian food, but then you know someone can eat a a, a plate of risotto and they think, oh well, Italian food, it's all pasta. Explain to us why there's so much rice in Italy and specifically what parts of Italy are known for the rice? Historically, Italy has actually imported most of its grain. So it's actually not a big grain producing country. What it is good at producing is rice. So that's all throughout Northern Italy. Um, it's regions like Piedmont, Lombardy, um, often a little bit off the tourist track. Part of the reason that Americans think of pasta as being so central is because of Italian immigration in the early 1900s. So many immigrants to the United States and to Canada came from southern Italy. So it's going to be more pasta-centric foodways, a lot more tomatoes. So the image that uh, many Americans mm -hmm. have of pasta is largely based on, um, on those southern foodways. And I know you yourself have Sicilian background, right. so I could definitely see some of... Uh, those delicious treats coming through. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Big Ziti was like uh, mother's milk growing up. Oh, the best. <laughs> I'm so envious. <laughs> so, okay, so that so that's interesting. So then now, yeah, like you mentioned in the north, um, the Piemont, uh, Lombardy, Veneto, that whole area right there. And so explain to us what exactly this had to do, especially going into the fascist era of Italian history. So it has a lot to do with the workforce there. Um, again, another one of the stereotypes that this book, uh, Feeding Fascism, is trying to work against 
is the idea that women didn't really work that much outside the home. Um, interestingly enough, white rice weeding, um, so bending over knee deep in the mud, pulling these weeds for the 40-day uh, rice weeding season, historically, that was an entirely female workforce. Um, something like 90% of the folks who were weeding rice in Italy um, for migrant agricultural labor, people would travel on bikes and in train in stock cars. Um, all of that was women. Um, the, uh, so the excuse that people would give is they would say, oh, the women are more patient. Um, so they can, they're more detail oriented. They're better for this kind of labor. Um, in reality, women could be paid less. This became really important during the fascist regime for two reasons. Um, and the first is, in terms of being payless, there was something called the Serpieri coefficient. Big guy in the fascist party, Arrigo Serpieri, decided that he would set the rate of women's pay at being only 60% of men's labor. So for a regime that needed to keep going economically, and it was very economically isolated, they turned to women's work even at the same time that they claimed that a woman's place was in the home. Right. And this, this was, and this was backbreaking labor. This was not, uh, you know, so you don't mean women obviously oh. were, were paid less, but you know, it wasn't a, a matter of them being stronger. This was very backbreaking labor for these, for anybody really. It was incredibly hard. And you think about the environment where they're doing that labor. So from the toes, to the top of your head, you're, from your toes to your knees, you're uh, wading through um, these flooded rice paddies, moving through the mud. There are water snakes. You're slapping at mosquitoes. There's the glare of the sun. And you're, uh, you're bent over for six hours of the period. These women are very famous for their work songs. Um, if you've ever seen the famous neorealist film, uh, Bitter Rice, uh, just beautiful, beautiful film, you might have heard some of these famous songs. And those songs actually take the labor of the rice paddies into account. All those percussive elements, all of the drumming and slapping, that was actually slapping the mosquitoes as they moved through the swamp singing. So Sting transformed into song. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I, I forgot the, the main actress's name in, in that movie. Um, but I remember, I remember her saying that she actually went out to the rice fields to, you know, to learn more about her part. And she goes... How long do they do this every day? Like 10 hours every day? I couldn't do this for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it. I think it's, I, if you're describing Silvana Mangano, um, who played uh, Silvana in Bitter Rice, um, I actually read some of the interviews, uh, or actually just some of the conversations that she had with the Mondine, so the Italian word for those rice weeders that were out there. Mm -hmm. And they absolutely loved her. Uh, they just <laughs> loved uh, her portrayal. They said that she gave her and um, the director, they believe, gave great dignity to the work of uh, Giuseppe DeSantis, the mm -hmm. director. Right. Um, they said uh, she gave great dignity to the work that they were doing in the field. So she was that film and uh, particularly her portrayal was just beloved. Now, explain to us what a lot of this had to do with with fascism. Now we're getting into the into the fascist times. And this was obviously not a great time to be an Italian woman. And unfortunately, I mean, the fact is, I mean, you, you lived in Italy as well. You understand that while they certainly do give a, a certain dignity to women, it's not what you considered equal rights, like you would consider in, in some other parts of the world. Um, but at the same time, it was obviously a lot worse to be a woman back then in Italy than it is now. So what does this have to do with this, this connection of women working in the rice fields and the fascist regime? 
So the fashion regime was really pushing rice during this period. They were, in particular, by the late 1930s, um, after the invasion of Ethiopia, they were under a huge number of economic sanctions. So they're economically isolated from trade partners. They can't bring enough wheat for um, pasta and bread. Mussolini launches what he called the battle for rice. And that was a slew of propaganda that aimed to get people to eat more rice, which, unlike grain, could easily be grown in Italy. So as part of that propaganda, he heralded the figure of the Mondine, the rice workers. Um, And they seemed like the perfect fascist women. They were florid. They appeared very fertile. They were hardworking, muscular, from the countryside. Everything about them appeared to be socially conservative. The problem was they were the opposite. They tended uh, they tended to identify with communism, socialism, even anarchism, and they were in the in the years of the heart of fascism. They were in a state of near constant revolt against the regime, um, and largely because of the labor conditions. Um, there's a famous song, "If Eight Hours Seem Too Few," and the continuation is then go and work them for yourselves. Um, <laughs> the eight-hour workday is actually a uh, is actually heritage of the, uh, the rice workers' strikes, where they laid across the railroad tracks and stopped the production. And that totally makes sense. You know, as we mentioned, this was not pleasant work. Uh, really, nobody wanted to do that. But these, these women take, seem to take uh, great pride in what they did, though. They really did. It's uh, so I've looked at a number of work song diaries and testimonials. Um, they're all from the uh, Archivio Diaristico Pieve Santo Stefano, um, a little jewel box of an archive. Even as much as they hated fascism, they continued to identify with uh, the work of being a rice weeder. It was a really, it was both incredibly difficult and in some ways incredibly special because it was a uniquely female space. Again, it's almost all women on the patties. And they learned about the international working class from older rice weeders at these sites. So it was a really intense moment of female bonding. Um, In the Mm -hmm. dormitories that they shared, there were pranks, there were jokes. Younger women were usually adopted by older ones in quasi-family structures. Um, I remember a wonderful quote where there is a younger Mondine, and they could be so young. They'd be going to these fields at you know, 14, 15, um, crying because she missed her mother. And an older Mondine comes out and says, well, now I will be your grandmother. And another woman comes out and says, and I'm your aunt, and I'm your sister. And so against this incredibly dark backdrop of the political regime, there is this incredibly special foundation of resistance. And one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that we think about historically now, I, I try not to get too political on this show because history mm-hmm. is history, not necessarily a, a way of saying this was right or this was wrong. It's more mm-hmm. or less learning from everything. But historically speaking, most historians would say that fascism was not Italy's brightest moment. <laughs> and <laughs> and obviously there was, uh, well, there was, you know, some benefits to fascism in Italy as a, as a whole, it was a, a net negative for sure. Um, and one of the things we can even think about is how the people at first, a lot of people supported it. But of course, famously, when Mussolini, when his regime ended, people were playing soccer with his head. And so it was people like this that helped to really 
put the idea of, you know what, maybe fascism isn't all it's, you know, all it's uh, set up to be. And so what kind of uh, legacy do you see with these women? Obviously, this was many generations, two, three generations ago. But what sort of influence do you see uh, even today because of these women? They continue to be really popular whenever there are resistance movements, um, particularly in the endurance of their song corps. Um, it came to the fore, uh, kind of like in the United States, uh, when we had the resurgence of folk music in 68, 69. All the Mondine music, once again, became very popular in that period. To give you a really specific example, um, the famous song Bella Ciao, that we often think of as being a partisan song, was actually written originally by the Mondine. And it's continued um, to be used today as a song of resistance, often with new words involved. They would probably approve of um, this continuous refashioning because stealing lyrics and refashioning songs was the main way that they created this music. Right. In fact, we could even think of uh, uh, House of Cards. I know it's a really popular show, especially in. in- in Latin America and in, and in Spain and Europe right now. And they that plays a big part in their resisting the system, things of that sort, which is ironic because when you and I talked at first, I thought it was a fascist song because <laughs> the, <laughs> the lyrics that I always heard were pro-fascist, or at least it seemed like they were. But you were saying how, how those lyrics changed depending on who was singing them. That was one of the Mondine's favorite tricks for refashioning songs. Uh, they were particularly fond of stealing fascist songs and then reworking them with socialist and communist lyrics. Bella Chow is one of those. Um, in fact, it's uh, <laughs> a lot of the songs that were written in the 30s by the Mondina can sound the same because they continually use Giovanezza or Youth, which was the fascist hymn, mm-hmm. and really enjoyed refashioning that as criticism of um, Mussolini's food policies. Well, speaking of Mussolini's food policies, your book, uh, Feeding Fascism, The Politics of Women's Food Work. It's fascinating because there are so many topics in there that there's very little information uh, available pretty much anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you had to do a massive amount of research uh, to, to, get this in, uh, to get this book together. Part of what was so fun in putting this book together was going to the tiny regional archives that are out in the middle of the countryside that hold this kind of, um, these kinds of historical objects. This book is so tactile. It has, well, first, tons and tons of illustrations, but it looks Mm -hmm. at um, all of the objects that I came across in these small museums, Um, these, the decorative bread plates that were given out as prizes for having more than six children by the regime, the, the posters advertising chocolate that contain colonial themes, the architectural plans for kitchens in Roman public housing projects, um, buildings that are still in use. So it's all, this project look, let me look at the physical world that women were working in every day and how politics were shaping that world. It's definitely uh, definitely worth a look. The The amount of research, like I said, was is absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's, a, it's a great thing you put together. And so we're going to have information on our social media as far as where you can purchase that. Uh, you can purchase hardcover and ebook version, correct? Yes, you can. Okay, excellent. Yeah, again, we're going to have that on our social media, links to all of that. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And as I understand, you're going to join us for next week's episode as well. 
I am really looking forward to it, Dave. (laughs) So am I. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for today and we'll see you next week on our show. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Until next time, this has been Dave Militello reminding you that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. (laughs) 